Good morning, everyone. The Bible reading today comes from the book of 2 Peter, um, the first chapter, verses 1 to 11. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thanks for reading that for us today, Lindell. Well, before we begin, how about I pray and ask for God's help uh, with the text that we have before us today. Father God, uh, please speak through us, uh, through your word to us this morning, Lord, uh, through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. Well, given uh, the climate of the world right now, I'm not sure how many of you have uh, flown in a plane recently. Uh, but I'm sure if you have, uh, you would have at least been somewhat familiar with those pre-flight safety videos that are forced upon you each and every time the plane uh, taxis to the runway. Uh, these videos, they remind you to buckle up, uh, they remind you to refrain from smoking, uh, to turn your phones to flight mode, uh, but most importantly, they tell you what to do in the unlikely event of an emergency. Now, about a decade ago, if you were to fly with Qantas, uh, you would have been greeted by a very young and handsome uh, John Travolta, who hopefully I can get up on the screen here. I don't think my clicker works. There we go. I'll take this thing here. I just wanted to leave him on the screen there a bit longer for you. This guy, John Travolta, at the time, uh, he was Qantas's way uh, of reminding you, uh, for example, not to wear your high heels as you go down the inflatable slide. He reminds you how to brace correctly, uh, and he reminds you to put your oxygen mask on first before helping others. And in this case, John Travolta, he was used as the draw card uh, in the hopes that you wouldn't simply ignore the video uh, like you've done every other time in your life. There's a sense in which when we fly and we see these safety videos over and over again, 
we essentially numb ourselves uh, to the importance of what we're hearing. So Qantas, in a bid uh, to tackle this, um, they used John Travolta to jazz up their videos. Uh, other airlines, they've done things like fancy animations, they've inserted jokes and other things, uh, whatever else they put in, uh, because they know that your attention is important at this point in time. They know how important these pre-flight safety videos are to having a safe flight, especially if something were to go wrong. Now, in 2 Peter 1, uh, we find Peter wanting to remind his readers uh, about stuff that they already know. Uh, it's stuff that you and I and his readers would have heard over and over and over again, and stuff which Peter admits uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, uh, the first verse after the reading we've had, uh, he admits that they're already firmly established in these things. And yet, like the pre-flight safety videos, uh, we run the risk of being numb to this incredibly important message of the gospel of grace because of our own complacency forgetting its fundamental importance, not just in one area of the Christian life, not just as we begin, but in all areas of the Christian life constantly. For a bit of context, uh, in 2 Peter, uh, he's about to be martyred. Uh, he tells us this in verses 13 to 15. Uh, and most likely he's in Rome uh, and is about to be killed by Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about this emperor, then you'd know at the very least that he wasn't really a very good guy for the Christians. Let's put it that way. But with his own martyrdom in sight, uh, Peter thinks it's really important for Christians then uh, to be reminded again and again of everything that God has done for them through Jesus. Now, he knows that there is absolutely no doubt they already know this stuff, but once again, he feels the need to keep pushing this. Why? Well, because like those pre-flight safety videos, uh, Peter knows the danger of us thinking that the gospel is boring. Us thinking that we've, we've outgrown it, that it's not important anymore. And he knows how easy it can be under these conditions and these ways of thinking for false ideas to slip into our heads. Peter knew that his readers needed to hear the gospel over and over again. And I think, in fact, I know the same is true for us all here this morning. So let's take a look at why. Um, if you're a note taker, we're going to start at point one on the outlines. Uh, Christianity is all about God help not self-help. So what makes uh, a passage like the one we've had read before us this morning uh, confronting uh, is the nature of its warnings. Um, I don't know if you felt uncomfortable as it was being read to you. Uh, it's easy to be frightened into submission uh, or drowned by guilt when we read things like this. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. As if somehow, if you don't make every effort, if you, if you do the wrong things or you don't do enough of the right things, then you'll end up in hell. In fact, when we see Peter uh, jumping up and down and screaming, make every effort to add to your faith uh, goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and the list goes on and on, it's very easy for us as Christians to slip into some really dangerous ways of thinking. I've known people, for example, who have said to me uh, something like this. I'm not doing enough to be a good Christian. So how can I be assured of my salvation? And the result that they come to is often something more along the lines of, well, look, what I need to do, I need to put more effort in, right? I need to read more. I need to pray more. That's how I confirm my calling and election. That's how I know I'm saved. 
And if you're not on that side of the spectrum, on the self-doubt side of the spectrum, uh, you might sit back after a long day of martyring your time and your energy and your money for the Lord and think, gee, God is lucky to have me. I mean, I know he doesn't need me, right? I know he can work without me. But, but really, when push comes to shove, what would he do without his faithful servant right here? And I want to hazard a guess uh, that for many of you, including myself here, that some of these feelings resonate quite deeply with you as you go through various seasons of your life. You might be in a season of doubt for one part of it and in a season of pride uh, for another part. In fact, you might be sitting here today. This might be where some of you are at right now. And the reason for this, I think, I suspect is because at our core, uh, we are deeply religious people. So the moment we read things like, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, and so on, as soon as we read commands like these ones in our Bibles, our natural tendency is to source our strength from our own steam. To, to then use the results of what we're trying to do here as a religious metric to compare ourselves with God or, or with those around us. And what ends up happening is we either punish ourselves when we don't live up to these standards or we puff ourselves up when we excel at being a good, godly Christian. And all too often, I suspect, like the pre-flight safety videos, we ignore the gospel of grace in the process. To put this another way, if you have feelings of guilt or doubt or pride when you see a list like this one on screen in 2 Peter 1, then might I suggest that maybe, just maybe, you've misunderstood what Peter is trying to say here. And ultimately, the root of it is maybe you've misunderstood the gospel. You see, Christianity, it's not about self-help. It's not a program full of rules for life. It's not a program about self-improvement. Uh, it's not a bunch of motivational quotes to get you out of bed in the morning, although I think sometimes that's what we turn Christianity into. No, Christianity is not about self-help. It's all about God-help. It's about how God intervenes in our helpless situation, how God supplies all that we need, how God is the one who enables us to do every good thing that we could possibly ever do for him, ever, because of his work in our lives. But ultimately, when we read passages like this one, uh, if you're anything like me, then the blinkers tend to turn on and the religious side kind of comes out of you and it rips this passage out of context. And although, yes, if you are paying attention, there is a clear warning in this passage for Peter's audience, and we will look at that shortly, this warning has to be understood through the lens of the gospel first and foremost, because any other way of reading it will miss the point, and ultimately, it'll risk harming you. So in case you missed it, I want to point out probably the most important part in today's reading for understanding the passage uh, and it comes in verse 5, right before the command uh, to make every effort. And Peter writes these unbelievably important words. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. For this very reason, make every effort. Right, those red words on the screen, it's Peter's way of saying, don't read on until you've thoroughly understood the first bit that I've just said. And so that being said, let's stop, 
Let's follow Peter's advice. Let's move our attention to verses 3 and 4, because these amazing verses hold the keys to understanding how we as Christians can make every effort to love and serve the Lord without all the guilt and all the pride. So if you've got your Bibles open, turn with me to verses 3 and 4 in 2 Peter 1. So the first uh, and most foundational aspect of living as a Christian uh, is understanding what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Sounds pretty straightforward. Um, In fact, if anyone sitting here is thinking, well, look, I know all this, you know, I I can tune out, I know the gospel, uh, might I warn you, don't, don't do what you do with those flight safety videos, all right? This is especially important if that's what you're thinking right now. We need to look at three fundamental things that God does for us Uh, in verses 3 and 4. So the first thing we're told, uh, the first thing that he does uh, is his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Right, God has given us everything we need. He has supplied everything for us. Not just some things, he's not giving us a leg up, you know, he's not kind of giving us a kickstart or a helping hand here. No, he's given us everything we need and nothing less. Secondly, we find out uh, that he has called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, I want to focus on his own glory and goodness here, right? It's not ours. We didn't force God's hand into rescuing us. He didn't accept us because of our own beauty or our own strength or our own goodness or godliness. Um, If you think about it carefully, that's every other religion on the face of the planet. Now, as Christians... We worship a God whose very character it is to come and seek out the lost because of his own goodness, not the goodness of anyone that he saves. And if that's not enough, we read in verse 4, the third thing that he does is he gives us his very great and precious promises. So in summary, he's given us everything we need. He's called us because of his own goodness and glory, and he's given us his great and precious promises promises. Basically, what this is saying is when it comes to salvation and every good thing that we do in this life, that's the work of God. That's all God in our lives. Any good thing that I am capable of doing, it's all God and my salvation that's been accomplished through Jesus. It's all Him. And when we consider this, when we really ponder the implications of this, Um, It's almost impossible then to to grasp just how great and glorious our God is, especially if you were to stack him up against any other God you were to come across on the planet. But what this also means is that in a world that is completely hostile to you, in a world that hates you because it hated Jesus, God has supplied you with everything you need to live a vibrant and godly Christian life. Everything. Everything. And so only then, only once we have that brick firmly laid in our hearts and our minds, that there is no self-help programs in the Christian life, only God-help programs, only then can we begin to understand how it's possible to make every effort to pursue godly lives, to make every effort without the guilt or the frustration. And this brings us to point two. Knowledge of God and his promises motivate and equip us with all we need to live godly lives. 
So now we know that God's divine power has given us uh, everything we need uh, in verse 3. What I want to do is dig a little deeper, and I want us to look at exactly how God does this for us here in 2 Peter 1. And where I want to begin is uh, to look at what Peter means when he uses the word uh, knowledge. Uh, That's why I've thrown it in inverted commas up here. Because he uses the word uh, quite a lot uh, in this book. In fact, he uses it quite a lot in the passage, these 11 verses we've had read before us. Um, including in the greeting even. might seem unusual to be here. What he says is, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now this word is likely a deliberate choice, uh, especially given the false teachers and the the types of people he's fighting against uh, in this letter. And feel free to ask me about that later. But he goes on to use it four more times in the rest of today's passage. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. But there are actually two understandings of the word knowledge here, two uses of it, and they're a little bit tricky to separate in English. So the first way we use it, for example, uh, is what we would call uh, intellectual knowledge or comprehension, like an understanding, right? The stuff that we can acquire and we can learn and train ourselves in, uh, the stuff that we go to school or to college or university to learn, and um, we'll go to YouTube to learn, like a backflip or a crochet tutorial, whatever it is, this is the intellectual knowledge that we kind of acquire over time. The second use of this word knowledge, though, it relates to the idea of coming to know, right? Like, like an epiphany, like a discovery, rather than comprehension. It's one of those aha moments, you know, in the cartoons when you see a little light bulb kind of come on above the person's head? It's that kind of knowledge, And that's the word that Peter uses most in today's passage. And this is important because Peter's using this word in relation to having that aha moment, uh, particularly when we finally come to see God for who he is. So an appropriate paraphrase uh, to give you an example of verse 2 could be, uh, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the discovery of or through coming to know God and Jesus our Lord. And the same could be said in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through what? Through, through a discovery or through a coming to know, through that epiphany moment of him who called you by his own glory and goodness. There are kind of overtones of, of what some people would probably call conversion in this. It's, it's that, that decisive moment when you suddenly realize who God is and what he's done. And this is important because Peter's not speaking about knowledge um, intellectual knowledge or acquired knowledge about God. We were talking up the back, uh, some of us earlier, before everyone arrived, about being puffed up with doctrine and and learning so much. He's not talking about that necessarily. He's speaking about knowing God personally. This, This knowledge of God is not a knowledge about God, it's a knowledge of Him. There's a profoundly relational aspect to the word he's using here. But not only did God reveal himself to us, allowing us to know him personally, to have that aha moment, um, but he goes the extra mile relationally by giving us his very great and precious promises. Or like the King James in this, it says his exceedingly great and precious promises. And if you don't think promises are a relational thing, then might I suggest you try doing this, right? Go into your favorite shop, whatever that may be, Grab a bunch of stuff, pile it high in your arms, and just say to the cashier that you promise to pay for it 
once you've loaded it all in the boot of your car. You see, the promise, it, it, it doesn't mean anything unless you have some kind of relationship with the person you're making the promise to. So if the person behind the cashier, for example, uh, was a friend or a family member, then that exact scenario, which was funny the first time, might actually look very, very different this time around. Basically, the, the closer you are to the person, the more a promise actually means. Um, I know this as a father. Um, I know how profound promises can be. Uh, I know the types of things they can do. So, for example, uh, if I promise my kids that we're going to McDonald's for dinner, and it's a shame Kids Cub isn't on right now, Kids Kids Biz, because they can hear this, although they're not hearing me say McDonald's. Great. If I were to promise them McDonald's for dinner tonight, well, what this does is it ignites them, right? It, it energises them. They run around squealing with joy all afternoon. In fact, with the promise of McDonald's firmly on their minds, they're far more amenable for me to say, go clean your room, stop arguing, you know, go, go have a bath, it's time for your bath. And they have no problem doing these things in which any other circumstance they normally would. You see, because what, what's happening is they're so happy at the prospect of McDonald's at the end of the day that they're more than happy to please their father who's asked them to do all these things. And just like the promises uh, to my own children, any promises from our heavenly father should then ignite us and energise us. Likewise, now, what are these promises? Well, we're only given uh, clues to the promises in the text. Uh, we're only given clues to the exact nature of them. Uh, Peter could be referring to all the, the prophecies of the Old Testament that lead up pointing to Jesus' death for the sins of the world. Uh, it could be a promise that we read in 2 Peter 3.13, uh, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Um, he could even be referring to the promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, which I personally think is probably what he's alluding to here, given that list of things he puts out in verses 5 to 7. Uh, but the truth is we're not exactly told what these promises are in 2 Peter. But there's a good reason for this. It's because he's not wanting us to focus on the content of the promises, but rather the, rather the result of what these promises uh, point to. Right? It's the result of the promises here that really matter. And Peter lays it out very clearly for us uh, in verse 4. He said that these, through these promises, you participate in the divine nature. Now, this might feel a bit weird. might seem a little bit new agey. You know, you kind of tap into God. You might see spiritual gurus talking about this kind of stuff. But essentially what Peter is saying is that you can now participate in God's holy character, right? There's sort of a, an, an ethical overtone to it. You can be like God in his holiness. And if you understand this, that this promise enables us to participate in God's divine character, to be holy like him, then it becomes strikingly clear that Peter's list of things in verses 5 to 7, they're not about things that, that burden us and guilt us and get us to God. They're not about things that we need to do in order to earn God's favour or anything like that. They're about us joyously participating in the very ethical character of God himself. In other words, if you need to see the list here in verses 5 to 7, and instead of being guilted, we need to look at them through the lens of a gospel heart. 
and to get excited by the fact that God enables us to participate in his divine nature to be able to do these things in the first place. Make sense? Now, the one thing so far that I have ignored uh, is the warnings in this passage. And given that Christianity is all about God help and not self-help, and that he has supplied everything we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, how then do we make sense of the warnings? Surely the warnings kind of lose their sting if God's got us covered, right? If he's got everything sorted for us, then how do these warnings hold any weight? And that's what we're going to look at now. So this brings us to the final point. Uh, we must never lose sight of what Jesus has done. So we think back uh, to the beginning of the talk, uh, remembering that beautiful face of John Travolta. The, the reason every airline spruces up their safety videos, it's not because specifically we're prone to forgetfulness. All of those things about what we need to do for an airline, I haven't flown on a plane in a long time, I just remembered them all, right? It's not because we're prone to forgetfulness per se. It's because in a deeper sense, we're prone to willful ignorance. In other words, we happily ignore John Travolta in order to play games on our phone as we're taxiing, or to review our holiday plans, or to simply look out your window at the baggage handler tossing that bag labelled fragile 20 feet to the ground. And while ignorance might have uh, very little implications for a flight that has a very small chance of crashing, willful ignorance of what Jesus has done has far more dire and certain consequences. Uh, in verse 9, uh, Peter says, but whoever does not have them, that is the virtues listed in 5 to 7, whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Uh, this idea of, of nearsightedness, uh, it doesn't mean short-sighted. Right? He's not targeting all of us who need glasses to see. He's not targeting those that are dependent on, on these sorts of things. No, it means something more along the lines of kind of screwing up your eyes, like a willful blindness, a, a refusing to see. And the clarifying point is what follows. They're nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. In other words, losing sight of what Jesus has done for them to bring them salvation they've forgotten the all-important gospel of grace. And this is the reason Peter feels the need to remind his readers of the gospel, even though he says himself in verse 12 that they're firmly established in the truth. He knows they've got it, but he also knows that like anyone, they're prone to a willful ignorance. And so he wants to keep refreshing their memory over and over and over again, because they, like us, are so prone to losing sight of what God has done for them. And so as uncomfortable as this is, if you've been sitting here thinking throughout this talk, yeah, yeah, you know, I already know the gospel, you know, teach me something new already. And the reality is that you're the one that Peter's targeting right now. You're the one at risk of losing sight of what really matters here. Because the gospel is the lens which shapes everything we do. It's not something we move on from. It's not something we grow out of ever. But there is a small problem. Because I think the fact is we all have willful ignorance. 
we all lose sight of what God has done from time to time. And when we read verse 10, which says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Well, what happens if we don't make every effort? And and, and if we don't do the things listed in verses 5 to 7, isn't that stumbling? So how do we make sense of this idea that we will never stumble when clearly we all do in so many ways? In fact, Peter, the one that that was writing this letter, um, he certainly had his fair share of screw-ups on multiple occasions. Um, In fact, he had a few big ones even after the church was well-established and he should have known better. Peter wasn't any angel himself. So he's not ignorant to the human condition that has been crippled by sin, Uh, In fact, arguably, a lot of the New Testament authors that we might turn to, like James or John and so on, they all know that we're not sinless. So what does Peter mean when he says that we will never stumble? Surely he's just kind of pushing up the Christian pipe dream here. Well, I think the answer is found in the very next verse. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, I think the stumbling he's referring to here, uh, it's a play on words, right? It has two meanings. Because if we do these things in 5 to 7 perfectly, right? if we do all those virtues in that list perfectly, of course we're not going to stumble. By definition, we haven't stumbled. But if we don't do these things then really we're messing up all the time. However, Peter's now also pointing us in the direction of heaven. You see, we will continue to stumble while here on earth, uh, even before Christ, uh, especially before Christ's return. We, we will continue to sin, and sometimes we will sin terribly. But it's in these moments that we must be prepared to throw ourselves on the gospel, on the good news that we're saved by grace alone to throw ourselves on God time and time again. And remember that through Jesus, God will hold us tight. What he's saying is that we won't stumble in the eternal sense. But when we know that that we're so broken, when we look at our lives with sober reflection, we know that there's nothing we can do under our own strength, well, then this brings us to the point where we realise that God has enabled us to live like him through his strength. And sometimes it's only when we hit rock bottom that we begin to realise this. Or as Peter says, he has richly supplied everything we need to live a godly life. How is this? It's because we've been transformed by his grace. And so finally, to kind of wrap up this morning, uh, the final question uh, becomes, how do I do this then? Right? How do I throw myself upon the grace of God without relying on my own strength? Surely there's some kind of weird contradiction going on there. And to that, uh, Peter gives us some answers. Firstly, he says, you need to realise that you can't just cover your sins with good deeds. Right? We're not meant to look at that list and ignore verses 3 and 4. Because if we just do good deeds, we just strive really hard to be good, to walk the old lady across the street, whatever it is, this doesn't deal with the heart issue. 
Right? This is the equivalent of putting lipstick on a pig. See, Peter wants us to be stirred into action by reminding us that we can live godly lives only because of the transformation that has occurred in our hearts from the gospel. And until we get this right, we're simply putting lipstick on a pig and calling it beautiful. See, there needs to be a gospel transformation first. And the second answer, which I think is a little bit more practical, is I think sometimes we need to stop everything that we're doing and refocus ourselves on Jesus. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you're here this morning uh, and you're struggling to live uh, what you would consider to be a godly Christian life, you're very aware of your own failings, well, the first step worth taking is to just stop. To stop and really sincerely ponder all that God has done for you in Jesus. To set your sights on him again. To stop trying harder and harder and harder to be a good Christian and simply dwell on God's promises and ask him to do what he has promised, to richly supply all that we need to get through this day in Christ Jesus. So as we finish up, how about I pray and ask God for help doing that now? Father God, Lord, all too often uh, we admit that we, we think we can outgrow the gospel. We think that we can live godly lives without you entirely in our own strength. Please humble us and stir us and remind us by your spirit of our dependency on you for every good thing. And remind us of the things that you have accomplished for us in Jesus. Father, help us to fix our eyes on him as our saviour. And may you grant us the strength that only you can provide to live out godly lives as we go about our business this week. And this we pray through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.